You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello and welcome into the House of L podcast. I am your dutiful host, Lawrence Holmes. It's episode 70. I think I messed up on episode 69 and called it 70. But this is the actual episode 70. And I'm glad that you are here for the ride. Have a good guest in store for you on today's podcast. Now, I want to explain something about this week's guest. So, comedian Pat McGann. Chicago comedian legend does a lot of cool stuff. He's a big White Sox fan, which you'll hear in the conversation that we have. We had a talk and I had this conversation on Loho Daily. This is where initially this was. I wanted to pull it and put it on House of L because it was so good. And I love talking to comedians about process. Not that I think that I'm a comedian. I'm not very funny at all, at least in my mind I am, but not publicly. But I do think that there is a connection between people who do radio, especially folks who have to speak extemporaneously, and some of the comedic process. So I love talking with comedians about how they do what they do. So Pat McGann came in here. This is, what, maybe two months ago. And we talked, and it was an episode of Loho Daily, and a lot of people listened to it, and it's fine. But I said to him that I felt like, at the time, Loho Daily was still building up its its subscriber base. And so, to me, the interview was now what I would consider too long for a Loho Daily. I'm kind of tinkering with that, and I think I found a happy spot now between 15 and, and 30 minutes. For Loho Daily, and usually it leans more towards 15 minutes. Although I did do a a Cubs podcast <laughs> that, that that I uploaded today that was close to 30 minutes, and I wasn't expecting it to be that long. But I digress. I wanted to bring this interview to a bigger audience, and right now, House of L's audience is bigger than Loho Daily's audience. And I thought that the conversation was really good. And I thought that Pat sounds like he actually just sounds great. Like sonically, he sounds really good. And we had a lot in common. So that's that's what, why I wanted to do the episode this way. I wanted to allow people who didn't hear it to be able to hear it. 
And I thought it living in a 24-hour cycle, not that you couldn't go back. You could go back right into Loho Daily and hear the whole thing. But I didn't want it to just live there. And I felt like I did a disservice to Pat by having it just be there. So I wanted to to put it on House of L, and I told him that. If you're not following Pat on Twitter, you should. McGann Pat is where you can find him on Twitter. He's a Southside dude. He does a lot of incredible stuff in, in the community. And I didn't know when he came in and sat down, I didn't know that he was a fan of mine, which is a weird thing where you see people on stage and on television and this guy is open up, opening up for Sebastian, for God's sakes. And him saying that he really likes my show, he loves the football show that I do, he had a lot of questions for me about that show, um, as as some people do. Uh, I was really happy to like sit down with him, another Southside guy, and we found out that we have a lot of stuff in common. Like we didn't, we're around the same age, and we didn't grow up too too far away from each other. Where I was in the Roseland Morgan Park area, and he was just west of that. So I had an incredible time talking with him, and I wanted to share it, and I wanted more people to hear it. So. This is my conversation. Keep in mind, at the time, he was doing a show, which is the whole reason why he did the interview in the first place. He was doing a show that weekend, so you'll hear me reference that. But Pat's doing comedy around the city all the time, and I'm glad that he made time for my podcast and that he's cool with with this one being opening up on House of L. And there's some good stuff in here, like him talking about Seinfeld and what it was like to introduce Jerry Seinfeld one night. So sit back, relax, and strap it down. This is me and Chicago comedian Pat McGann. The morning show guy at Jams is Ed Lover. So is he here in Chicago? Yeah, he's he was you walked I, right past him. I knew he was here, but I thought that was like syndicated. I no, thought, no, he's here like oh, every man. day. Like he he you'll probably see him in the hallway when you leave. But yeah, it's it's, Ed Lover. I you, saw him brick a shot in one of those jock jam games. What were those? Uh, rock the Rockin' jock? Jocks? Oh, man. With uh, uh, Dan he, Cortez. I remember he had kind of an <laughs> ugly J. You know, like, and that's when we were playing, uh, when I was playing a lot of hoops, and me and my buddies used to get on each other and call each other Ed Lover if you, like, brick some oh, shot. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, my God. I got to share that with him. <laughs> yeah. I'm going I'm to have this played on jams. I, I was it that s- bad? Do I need to YouTube it? It was It was rough. He was like, I think really? it was wide open and like hit the opposite side of the backboard, like from the side, from the wing. Oh, hit the opposite side. <laughs> you breaking my heart about my man Ed Lover, but hey. Maybe it, he's worked on his jumper. This is like mid-90s. I used to love those games. Like, I really did. Like, because it would be a lot of fun. And they had what the 25-point yeah. shot that you could make and all it that stuff. It was not difficult to make it either. No. It was, it was just straight up. It was like a Steph Curry three. Right. Now. This a raindrop <laughs> or teardrop, what do they call them? Teardrop, like the when you put it up in the floater, floater, yeah. So, this is great since we're the same age, we can totally just do like the, the remember when, yeah. We could do all of our cool stuff, like the moment when you realize that on G.I. Joe, no one ever died. <laughs> I didn't watch a ton a of G.I. Joe, but I, I do get the reference for sure. It'd be like plane gets hit, everyone parachutes <laughs> out, no one ever dies. It's a really, really great thing. That's why it's not violent. You no. can be as violent as you want if no one dies, right? It was a Hasbro thing, so I don't think that they wanted that on TV, for yeah. sure. 
I watch Tom and Jerry sometimes. I got kids, and I'll pull it up on YouTube and be like, this is what I used to watch, you know? And they're like, they're not talking. It's like, yeah, they're not talking. And then, like, they're still alive. Like, they never... To me, I, I'd love those cartoons growing up. I did too, but then when you get older, like you see some of the stuff in it, like some of the real stuff, like with Tom and Jerry in particular. Oh, there's some, yeah, there's some. The racism, the racism. in it is it's just dripping, and but they changed it. So, like, if you see old Tom and Jerry cartoons that we remember, yeah, where they would have the you know stereotypical like mammy type character. She's now like got a British accent. Like it's, it's like it's, Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> it's like so I saw it in the airport and I was I said to my wife, I was like, they oh, can't they can't be showing this. There's here. some chauvinism too in it too. Oh, it's total it's yeah, out it of not, pocket. Some of it is not aged well, but the best episodes were when the were when the humans weren't even in them. I agree with you. I, I also I did like the ones where occasionally Tom would talk. Mm. You know, when, when usually when he was trying to pick up a lady. Yeah. You know, the is you is or is you ain't my baby like episode <laughs> of that was dope. Like, I love that. But I, I always found Jerry to be a hater. You know, yeah. like, if you really think about it, like, Jerry was a hater. Like, he never wanted Tom to do anything but chase him. Right. Yeah, that's funny. Man, you really analyzed it. I, I was just like, probably analyzed watch it. Watch it with a blank. Probably analyzed Turn the brain off. <laughs> Can, can I ask you some comedy questions? That yeah, I know, man, you can ask me anything. Look, when I listen to, to comedians talk about stuff, I know that you get tired of, like, the rote stuff, but it is interesting to me. So sure. I'm, I'm curious. What made you say, I'm funny, I can be in front, of a st- uh, in front of a crowd on a stage? You know, that was the hardest thing to actually, that probably held me back from starting when I was younger, is I didn't have the confidence or, like, the... Yeah, I guess confidence to say like, yeah, I could do this because I always felt like the reaction would be like, why do you, why do you think you can do that? Like, because my buddies were funnier than me and I was, I've been around funny people my whole life. So to then say, well, I'm going to pursue this as a, you know, career or even at the time I started as just as a hobby. But um, what made it like possible, I remember I met my now wife and I was just telling her about it and she was she was like, didn't understand at all the hesitation. She was like, do it. Why not? Like all these people are from somewhere. They started somewhere. And we went to some open mics. I kind of like checked them out. And that gave me some confidence too, because I was like, I could at least do that. You know, you go to open mic, there can be some rough sets. They're all over the city. Anyone can pop in any of those. And you see like, okay, well, this is what I want to try. This is how you start. I could at least do that. And then you, because there are people that aren't even prepared. Like, I felt like I would at least be prepared, like, write something, memorize it, and have something to say. What I was not ready for was, like, the big lights in the eye. Because I, I kind of scouted, like I said, a couple of open mics, and I went to the one that most, to me, felt like a comedy club. Like, I, I had been to Zany's before, and I thought that that was what you did if you started stand-up in Chicago, that you got to get to Zany's. Like, I didn't know that there was, like, this independent scene and, like, this whole... Um, alternative scene at the time, what they called it. I didn't know anything about that. So I was just like, I'm going to go to this place. This feels like a comedy club, and then I'll try and... And someone will discover me, and I'll yeah. end up at Zany's. Yeah, it took it took a while. But I, I did get lucky. I um, had a nice first showcase at Zany's and got a booking. I remember I like did the open mic in September, and I got a booking like two weeks later for May. So I had like all this and then like this may date was looming 
And at that time, I was, like, going out to um, Walter Payton's Roundhouse in Aurora and uh, doing spots everywhere downtown. Like, I say downtown because I'm a south sider, but on the north side, I would just be popping into bars wherever they had open mics and trying to get ready for that Zanies thing. When did you know that it, it was a career, that it wasn't just, oh, you know, I like to do comedy, but I could actually make a living out of this. I can travel. I can see the world, and I'm yeah. good at what I do. Yeah, when I was um, asked to be house MC at Zanies, I felt like this could potentially grow. You know, I didn't know what it was going to grow to or, you know, I still don't know where it, is, it, it will all go, right? Everyone has this different path. But, like, when Zanies asked me to be House MC and they were paying me, like, a weekly rate that was decent, I mean, it was not, like, anything I could live off of, but it was, I kind of knew what other comics were making. And not that it was about making money, but, you know. You have to live. You have to live. You have to be, like, I get it. Like, oh, I'm a, the whole artist thing. <laughs> I mean, I don't like to get into that. Like, oh, I'm, a, I'm a, an artist or my art. Like, I just like being... A smart ass and if I can make money doing it and making people laugh, like that's what I love. And but once you start making money and if you are gonna do it, you have to, you know, I got three kids, I got a mortgage, I gotta make money, you know. How hard is it to write from night to night? Like if if you're hosting and you've got a bunch of nights in a row, like yeah. How do you go into your particular is it do you leave when it I alone was, or do you you see what the room is or do you Already I would have always, stuff prepared. So when I started, I was kind of like a prisoner of my material. I could only do like the stuff that I had memorized. And then Zanies, as a host, they were like, "You got to talk to them. You got to ask them where they're from. You got to find out if anyone's celebrating anything." Like those are the two things they really wanted you to ask. So I started with that, and then I started being able. I was comfortable enough where I had some answers I use all the time, like some stock stuff, but started to gain this comfort on stage to talk to people. And I did, I did a ton of crowd work at that time, which I don't really do anymore. But at that time, I was doing a ton of the crowd work. So every set was different. And then I would might, like, sneak in some bits at the end to get, a, to get them in, in the rhythm. Because as a host, you're supposed to warm them up and then get them in the rhythm of hearing comedy and then hand it off to the next comic so that the crowd is, like, re- ready to, to consume comedy in, like, a rhythm form or whatever it is. You know, they're focused. Um so that was um, kind of how I grew in that phase. And get, getting comfortable on stage is the biggest thing. And then writing, you know, I don't write every single day. I, I should be more disciplined with it. But I'll wait till things start kind of, my mind starts turning. A lot of times I'll think of things when I'm driving and I'll jot something in my phone or voice record a note. Um and then sometimes I will just get a notebook out and just like kind of almost journal. Like, what have I been doing? Is there anything funny in there? You know, what's going on with the kids? What's going on with my wife? And and then I'll kind of mine that material a little bit. What's the job of an opener? Because I've always wondered, because you've opened for some pretty big names in the industry. Is it okay for you to kill as yeah. the opener? Yes, I think so. I think that you should... If you're killing in a appropriate way, yeah, you should you should be up there doing, you know, depending on the venue, depending on the um, the situation. Um, I think that you should, you know, it, you know, you can sneak some new stuff in occasionally, 
But I think if like the shows that I'm doing with Sebastian, these people are spending a lot of money to go to a theater to go to a show. Like these people, they're going to be entertained. They're there to see their guy. They're there to see Sebastian. But you know, they're also like he wants them to have a, a great experience the whole entire show. So he trusts me as his opener to go out there and break it open and you know get them going. And I think I don't think he wants me up there like trying new stuff or. But what I do not do as the opener is I do not do any crowd work. I do not do any local references really at all. Why not? Because I I feel like that is his. And for me to take that away or to mention a premise before he has the opportunity to, I don't think that's that's cool. It's his show. I'm just there to – my job is to be good – be professional, get them going. But, I, you know, I don't think that people uh, that are opening for comics doing local stuff or doing a ton of crowd work, it's just a disservice to who's going to follow you. When you're done with your set, how much will you watch of the other comics? Or are you in replay mode where you're figuring out, like, this worked for my set, this didn't work? How long, like, how long do you give, I guess, the... The, the improper way to say it is, what's your refractory pe- yeah. period after you, you go on? When I do the Sebastian shows, if I am trying something new, I'll think about those new things. Um, or I'll just be, that's probably what I'll be thinking about. Or I'll uh, think about like, oh, I, sh- I should have done this joke or switched the order. or And then I'll I'll watch him occasionally. You know, if I feel like if I watch him, if you watch one person all the time, they're going to, like, seep in your subconscious and you're going to be too influenced by them, I think. Mm. I enjoy watching his new stuff. When he, I notice when he's doing new things. Um, and that's how I kind of know all the stuff he's doing. But I don't know the order. I don't know the show from beginning to end. And then occasionally I'll just be in the mood and I'll be like, you know what, I'm just going to enjoy this. I'm going to go as a as a comedy fan and go watch him and be in the environment, which I love being in an audience and feeling that energy and laughing. And I'm not a big laugher, but like being around their laughter, like I, I just love it. What's the best crowd that you've been in front of? Like that, that you remember like, yeah, this is... We did a show in Pittsburgh this year at their Symphony Hall that was explosive. It was a beautiful theater right in downtown Pittsburgh. Which is two a great shows. city, by the way. Yeah, and I don't know Pittsburgh that well. I've only been there like a couple times. PNC Park? There, I got a great PNC story. Okay. But the uh, that show was lights out. There was a, a show in Detroit that was phenomenal. What what makes for, for you a hot crowd? Like what's what's the kind of criteria for what you want? You know, it's incredible that I can, like, talk like this because these are all Sebastian's audiences that I'm getting to be in front of. I mean, I'm happy when I'm at a comedy club and it's a packed room on a Friday, Saturday, and it's just electric. But doing these theaters, and I've done so many now, I love, like, a Chicago theater-style size or even smaller, like the old vaudeville houses that are, like, 1,400 to 1,800 seats. They're, like, kind of... Steep, they're straight up and down, the balcony, then you got the main floor, no center aisle. I don't like the center aisle, it kind of like splits the theater. Like I want seats were all right up in, oh man, those places like rock. Like there's one in Austin called the Paramount, Denver I think is also called the Paramount. Like now that I've, 
I've been like so spoiled going to all these venues, man. I went to a like as I enjoy stand up comedy, and I'm now like I have a couple of friends that do monthly shows. My buddy Dave Hellum does the the show Dave. at North. Yeah, you know he does that. Comes back home once a month, and I I really enjoy it. I saw a show Christmas Eve, God, maybe five years ago now. And it blew my mind. It was one of those pop-up shows where Hannibal was like, oh, yeah. hey, I'm in town. Man. So it was Hannibal and Amy Schumer. No okay? kidding. So so that's that was the to get you was in the door. Is that room? Uh, Beat Kitchen. Oh, wow. Okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's like a 300-person venue, venue. And we were all standing for it. So you're going there. It's like, oh, it's it's Amy. It's Hannibal. It'll be great. Like every Chicagoan, was, it was bananas. Dion Cole popped in. No kidding. And did a set. I I didn't realize this until it happened. I was standing next to John Mulaney. Really? Yeah. He was just he had come from Midnight Mass. Wow. <laughs> just was standing there in the parka. They call him up. He throws the parka to to I think at the time his girlfriend now his wife goes up there and just did 15 minutes and walked out and it was that's incredible great. like the whole experience was um was really incredible and i i i know that that stuff happens a lot in new york mm-hmm. to see it happen in chicago right was so that's dope. a great point that is a great point yeah you don't see it as much in chicago um names like that and um when those things happen man it is and, and it's to me i always think about like yeah it's so great for them but to me i always think about the comics like what a great like we live for those moments. Like th- these guys are going to be like Deion Cole's going to be up there, and Hannibal, Amy Schumer, Mulaney. Like, and if you were able to pop on that a show like that, like so they are excited. They're like he's probably like wow. There's a show down the street. Like he couldn't stay away. He's probably was a it, what business family down the street going to yeah. midnight mass, and like you can't stay away, man. That's these huge names. When you go, like you, uh, when you talk about New York, I was just doing uh, Gotham out there, and Seinfeld dropped in on my show. What? Can't stay away, man. He's you got to stay sharp. You got to try new stuff. You got to do it. Like everyone has to go through that. You have to have those. So Seinfeld does that a lot in New York. But I got to introduce him. I got the call because I was headlining the show. And I got the call like four in the afternoon. Hey, Seinfeld's coming into your first show tonight. And this is the first time I'm doing a New York club, like closing it out. Like I was nervous. And now I got Seinfeld coming. And I'm just like, oh, man, I got to switch some of my good stuff to be. Because I figured he'd see like my last 10 minutes maybe. So I kind of like switched my order in my head. Like I'm going to make sure my last 10 is really strong. Did you feel like you nailed it? I felt good. I felt good. I was, it was tough that it was the first night. I wish I had like been in the club and like the first night at the club is always like, you're kind of trying it on, you know? And a lot of the times that's a Wednesday or a Thursday. This one starts on a Friday. So you're thrown into the fire right away. Like it's Friday night. You got to bring it. You got to start your first show. You don't get the BP of a Wednesday Hmm. night. You know what I'm saying? So the audience doesn't know. No, the audience did not know. So what's the, you, you introduced Seinfeld. What's the reaction? So I you know, like did my normal closing thing, and then I said, hey, I know it seems like the show is over, but it is not. When you come to Gotham Comedy Club, you never know who you're going to see. Ladies and gentlemen, Jerry Seinfeld. And the place was like, what? He's here? Like, And then just bananas. Standing up. They saw him, because at this point they see him. 
walking through. But but they're thinking he's, you know, just there. And now it's like mm-hmm. he's walking to the stage. And now they're like, wow, we our trip to New York City paid off. Like Gotham gets a, a lot of locals, but they also get some tourists. And you just feel their energy of like, can you believe this? Like we we came to New York City and we're seeing Jerry Seinfeld pop into a comedy club. Like it's just it's awesome to see. I mean, it is it's really cool. I'm so happy that, that we're having this conversation. I know you probably thought this was going to go a totally different way, too. No, it's, not at all, man. I just love talking, whatever. That, that you were like, oh, he's going to totally ask me about the White Sox. And- but I want to seem like I'm, like, dropping his name. I, 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 To me, I was – I'm, like, feel terrible that I didn't get a picture with him. But I didn't want to bother him. I didn't want to be like – because he's, you know, really tight with Sebastian. You know, they've had dinner together. Jerry kind of has said, like, that's the guy that I really love that's working right now. Had him on Comedians and Cars Getting Coffee. Had I him saw. On. So I was trying to act like, hey, I'm— No big deal. No big deal. Like, you don't want to be that guy, like, up his ass, asking for a picture. And, like, so my wife was supposed—she did come that night from Chicago, but she was delayed, like, four hours, so she missed— And I called her right when I heard. I was like, you know, babe, this is going to be awesome tonight. Jerry Seinfeld's coming. And she was like, what? And oh, man. Delayed, delayed, missed it. She would have been like, can we get a picture? You know, she would have been. It's a little, she, but that's an easier sell, that's though. A, right. That, exactly. That's a, a much easier sell than if if, if, if you ask right. for it. For sure. All right. Well, then let me let me ask you this. You do a ton of charity work. Like, you emcee a lot of charity gigs. Why is that so important to you? Well, when I... Um, started out there was there's always these events and this you know you know the south side i mean we're from virtually the same, same area neighborhood. And same neighborhood and th- there's always charitable things going on out there people are always looking to help each other our son um had cancer he was diagnosed when he was like a year and a half had leukemia rough patch um when he f- was first diagnosed and then um just an, a tough path because it's such, such a long path um, and during that time it was like, you know, maybe I could do some things to raise money f- to help, uh, people, you know, at first we were throwing it to, uh, research in pediatric cancer. And then we thought, you know what, maybe we could, it just felt like maybe we could see more if, of what we were doing, if we gave it to families. Cause then also we were going through it and, um, we realized that families, you just need something you know, it's like one less thing to worry about if you have if this influx of cash that you can just kind of alleviate some burden. And, um, you know, I've reached out to the comedy community in Chicago and they've been so great and donating their time and coming out and doing shows with me. And I mean, it's important to me because it's uh, it's just like who I think it's who I am. And I I think that comedy is a great unifier and. I also been to a million different types of fundraisers and sometimes they feel like a shakedown and sometimes you feel like you're not getting anything out of it. I feel good about the fact that our fundraiser is just a fun night for everybody. Everyone walks out like, wow, that was it's a shared experience and it's a good time and it's just good for the soul. We're both White Sox fans. Oh, yeah. I, I want to throw something. What? Why are you I pointing saw at me? You, I was at the game when you threw out your first pitch, and dude, it was a great first pitch. Thank you. I've I been... was randomly at that game, and I was like, "All right, let me see this," because I'm not always there that early either. You know, 
And I was like, let me watch this. You had your glove, didn't you? No, it wasn't mine. So here's the story behind that. There's, there's, it was the, they were doing a whole thing with media people throwing out the first pitch. It was a bracket. Okay. okay. So it was me and Jen Latta. We, we had met, met up in the championship. So in the first two rounds, because I had done it twice before. Oh, you had? Yeah. So the first two rounds, I just, I just lobbed it. Like, I was just like, okay, I'm yeah. I, just playing catch. This is easy. Um, and then the last day, we were sitting there, and Jen was like, do we get to, like, warm up? And I said, yeah, we, I mean, we can throw the ball around. And there was this guy who was sitting. He had came in for autographs, and he had this glove from, like, the 30s. And I was like, that's really cool. Can I, do you mind if I check it out? My grandfather played in the Negro League, so I have his wow, gloves from the 30s. So I was like, oh, this is super cool yeah. to actually have one that you could – touch because i have his framed like i i the, the original dirt like all of it like that it is, is cool. in there and and so this guy gave me his glove and i was like can do you mind if i use this for the first pitch and he's like no yeah do it like please go out there and do it so i said i told the story this week on, on the on the station but sale was catching the first pitch and i said to sale before he went behind the plate i said can i let one go and he's like, yes, but I'm not wearing a cup. So if you skip it, I'm going to mess you up. Oh, yeah. So just know added that. Added pressure. Yeah, the, the added pressure of this all-star, all-world pitcher oh, man. telling you this. Um, and I said, I'm not going to skip it. I promise you. And so I threw it. I, and he goes, he was. if you see the video of it, I'll send you the video of it. He's amazed. By it, his face is like what? And then he came back to me and he goes, "Did you throw me a cutter?" And I said, "Yes, I threw you a cutter." <laughs> so I played oh, college you threw a ball. Breaking ball, huh? Yeah. Oh, you did? Yeah. So how hard did you throw that one? About seventy. Man, yeah, it was a rope. So, so the only thing I that week, Kevin Hart had thrown out the first pitch, and he, I think he had thrown it like sixty-two. And I said, if nothing else, in the zone. Yeah, he got it there. I want to throw the ball harder than Kevin Hart did. Yeah. Like, that was the only thing that was on my mind. <laughs> and I was like, the only athletic talent I love that, that I had. That's what motivated you. Hell yeah. Because, you know, <laughs> I, I was like, not in my park. I can't have Kevin Hart have the record in my park. But it's the only athletic gift I have is my arm strength. Like, it's the only thing. I'm not fast. I'm not particularly strong. I couldn't hit. I had two home runs my entire baseball career. Two, and they came in the same game. Really? Yeah. Oh, you had a day. I had a great day. So that was the one time that I could actually like show out. Hey, man, you play college baseball. You got to be athletic to do that. I'm decent. Where'd you go to school? I went to DePaul. We had we had the club squad, and we played a bunch of uh, NAIA teams and D D one. We played Northwestern once and got just. Whew. Oh yeah, I had to pitch in that game. I'm a catcher by trade. And I throw like a catcher. Like, it's right here. Yeah, yeah. It's not – nothing fluid about it. But I had to pitch because we got bombed so bad. And I actually did okay. And then my arm got tired, and I was throwing curveballs that were 12 to 6. Wow. It's a beautiful thing. Anyway. No, that's great. I, I've really come back to baseball. I went into basketball deep during the Jordan years. And I grew up, like, the first part of my life, baseball. And then, like, my this, I feel like I'm going back to baseball. Well, I – I've been really trying so hard not to get a, too far out ahead of myself with this particular White Sox team. I really like them. 
So they're, right. they're missing some stuff. They needed one and a half more starters. Right. But Tim Anderson, I need more of it. Love it. I like there's there's something about him right now that I think is so south side. Like that's so like, you know what? Yeah, we are gonna brag a this little is bit. Who we are. And if you come at our guy, that I think that, that what the Royals did back in April got White Sox fans' attention. Yeah. That white like that's our guy. Like right. let's not mess around here. So I, I like it. And Giolito's been great. So he's got swagger and that you need that, especially when you're coming up. Like they're they need leadership, they need swagger, they need confidence, they need all these things. And I mean, I think that they're like they're not healthy either right now. So their injuries are I mean, that's a major factor, and they're still at basically 500. I think they're going to be right around there all. But they're a fun 500 to watch. I'm telling you, I like – there's games when it's not Giolito starting or uh, Lopez. And <laughs> the drop-off there is tough. It's it's steep. It is really steep, and more so with Rodon going down. But they are still – like you said, I don't think they're that many pieces away. If they can be healthy, that's that's what you learn, though, too, or you're reminded of. You can have all the pieces, but if you're not healthy – it doesn't matter. I, I was at the ballpark yesterday, and I'm not going to say who, but someone very well connected inside White Sox said, come here, looked at the schedule and said, we're going to be above 500 before the second week of June. Yeah. And then then this person was like, don't look at the weeks after that, though. Right, right, right. And I was like, what? Because it's like Astros, Cubs, Red Sox. Yeah, <laughs> Like yeah. after that, it's like, but – we're going to go over 500 before the second week. And I'm like, don't tell me that, man. Because <laughs> I'm getting so, like, excited about what the future may hold. It's yeah, pretty I crazy. Mean, they're doing things that they should do, right? I mean, they went on the road to Houston and they won two games. That was huge. The Twins they, thing was a debacle, though. That was terrible. And when I saw Manny Banuelos was starting, I was like, oh, God, no. But they, they, they had to get fat on the Royals, and they did. Like, you have to beat the bad teams. You have to, and win now the, you got those series, coming in. split series against good teams, and th- those will turn into wins in a couple of years. I mean, even if they're a couple of years away, what where would they be if Rodon and Kopech were healthy? Like those are pieces that they do have. They're on the yeah. They technically would be on the roster. Yeah, like starting. that's it, and and that's that one and a half starter. You right. know that I'm talking about. It makes me it makes me crazy because I think about like maybe they should sign Dallas Keuchel. You know, that if we are talking about a team that's still hovering around 500 and still in contention for a wild card in the American League, which they are technically right now, would I want Rick Hahn to then spend some money on Dallas Keuchel? And I'm fighting myself on this. Like, I'm totally to fighting up. Just got to give up money. That's all you got to give up. Yeah. And they got it because... But j- to do it now, I don't know if that's the move because... You don't have Kopech. You don't have Rodon. You don't have um, – who else is missing? They got another pretty big name that's out, right? Who am I thinking of? Well, they don't They don't have like a center fielder. Yeah. They don't have the uh, – You're kind of you're, – you're getting lucky with some of the stuff with James McCann. Like he's been really good so far this year. He's been great. But huh? that's But that's kind of the crazy thing too. Abreu like got hot and then got cold. And then yesterday he hit a homer. Moncada got hot. Got really cold, and then he hits like it's. There's a lot of good that's like Aloy is uh, exciting, Moncada is exciting, yeah. Anderson's exciting. I'm 
Pat, I'm trying so hard not to get excited I just about hope, our boys. I just I, I want to see Tim Anderson have a great season. Me and too. I want to see him have another great season next year. And then you're really in position. I, I just think that then what where will Abreu be then? He's got another uh he'll be a free agent. But I mean, I think that they want to bring him back. Yeah. I think, like, from everything that I've said or heard from them, they want him. They think that he's got value that goes beyond his value on the field, which is valuable. Yeah. You know, he he is a 900 OPS type player, but they really think that his leadership is taking a step forward. And he used to be, well, this was a guy that people looked at as the leader of the, the Latino players. And now it's he's their captain. Like, that's the yeah. guy. And you saw it with the Anderson thing. In April, no one wanted that smoke with Jose Abreu. Jose walked out there, and I was like, that's the end of this. Right. Cause, and I like that. I like that about this team, man. Um, I'm sorry I dragged you down that, no, that rabbit hole. No, I love hole, it, man. Man, Talking about the White Sox and me getting excited. If people, uh, when they come see you this week, what are they going to see? They're going to see, uh, you know, I'm, I have it, some new stuff. I mean, I talk a ton about being married, having kids. I do some local stuff when I'm home which is always fun because I don't get to do it on the road. Um, yeah, I think let's see a, a, a fun show. It's going to be – we have the Saturday 9 o'clock show already sold out, and then the Friday – the 8 o'clock show on Friday and the 7 o'clock show on Saturday are nearly sold out. So we're going to have some good crowds, and that place rocks. Like Zany's in Old Town is a great club. It's trapped energy in there, and it's just a good environment. I'm, I'm really looking forward to being back there. If people want to follow you on social media, how can they? I'm uh, at McGann Pat on Twitter, at McGann underscore Pat on Instagram, and um, I got a Facebook page. I got a website, patmcgannedcomedy.com. That's where I'm at. I appreciate you coming in here. Oh, Lawrence, man. Thank you so much for having me, man. This was this was awesome, and uh, good luck with everything. And I, here's what I would like. I would like to bring you back in here at some point and do an even longer form yeah. with you. I'm here, man. If that's okay. Of course. I'd love to come back. All right. Cool, man. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really enjoyed that conversation, and I, I do think that he will be on the list of people that gets an invite back to the podcast now that I have broken the seal on that. And uh, I am I wanted to do kind of a round robin, but I don't know if that that is going to happen. We'll just bring some of our favorite people back. And, I mean, things and careers change. I'm noticing that with some of the people that have already been on the podcast. And if you miss some of the great people that have already been on, you know, obviously Mark Grody, Jason Goff, the Kelly Kroll episode, Layla Rahimi, man, that that episode was dope. Sierra Santos. I mean, you name it. For the most part, we've had really great people. Uh, Dan Roan, I mean, oh, wait, that was Little Daily. Damn it. And the radio show. I'm doing so much content, I'm getting confused of where my content lives. Anyway, if you go back through the 70 episodes and discount the, the football episodes, you'll find some really talented and interesting people in the world of media. And I do like talking with comedians as well, like I did with Pat and my buddy Dave Hellum. Actually, that Dave Hellum episode, I don't think enough people listen to that. You should go back and listen to it because it's hilarious. And we came up with some ideas for some stuff. And I expect full credit when Dave makes millions of dollars off of it or I'm going to sue him. Just so you know. And that he knows. 
All right, let me get to the emails. You can email, yes, you can still email the show. House of L podcast at gmail.com. In the second half of the podcast, I usually will take people's emails. And I know that there are some people who wanted to get in on the Black Like Me episode that I did for episode 69. Um, and I wanted to I wanted to, to to allow people to do that. And some people have, you know, guest ideas and whatnot. Like John. John says, I'm loving your House of L podcast due to the variety of guests that you have. I don't know if I have a true favorite since I found all of them entertaining and informative. Granted, I almost got into a car accident with the Mark Rohde episode from laughing so hard. I know it's a long shot, but have you reached out to Paula Ferris? I know she is super busy, but it would be one of the greatest reunion shows. Also, ever thought about doing like a roundtable with the HF Mafia? That's from John. I haven't. Paula and I, we will communicate occasionally. I haven't reached out to ask her to be on my pod, but it's not a terrible idea. And she's got her new pod that she's doing all about religion, which is really dope, and you should check it out. But, yeah, I when I got to, to Channel 5 back in 2011, Peggy and Paula and Mike Adamley were so nice to me. And they didn't have to be, and they were. And Paula and I are see eye to eye on a lot of issues. She's just, one of the things I've always liked about her is that she just has common sense. She's a genuinely nice person with pretty good morals and values and common sense. I'm extremely happy with her success. I will tell you, and maybe we'll get into it if I ever get her on, when I was debating, not this past contract, uh, but when I was debating leaving sports altogether for an opportunity that was going to be a more newsy and uh, current events, she was one of the people that I reached out to, her and Ryan Shiverini, because they're sports people who moved into that lane and have had incredible success. And Paula actually was like, do it. She's like, leave. She's like, you can always come back to sports. I ended up choosing sports, but her input on the subject was very important to, to me making some decisions. So, yeah, I think that's a great suggestion. I'll get right on that. This from Rapier Saunders. All right, that's a name. Hey, Lawrence, been a fan of your various shows for a while, and I ran into... I ran into you at Beauty Bar. Oh, yeah, it's in Buck Tuesdays when my man DJ J. Illa was DJing. Anyway, that made me think about the, the intersection of sports music in Chicago. I'm not sure if you're familiar with David Kelly, who is current legal counsel for the Golden State Warriors, but he used to be a prominent figure in Chicago's underground rap scene of the 90s. I dropped a couple links to, of his interviews. Keep up the great work. I'm always down for that. I should probably get J. Illa on before bear season starts, too. Jayla is a friend. He DJed my wedding. I think he's the dopest DJ in the city. No disrespect. He's the Bears DJ. So on game day, you see Jayla on the field DJing. He's really phenomenal. I should probably talk with him. But thank you. I appreciate the the see running into you number one at, at Beauty Bar and the suggestion of David Kelly. All right. Let's see. This guy's got a peeve. 
against what we do over at Stadium. I don't know, ain't nobody got time for all that. This one is from Charles. Charles says, Lawrence, I'm Charles. You told my story. Oh, you're talking about the Black Like Me episode. Okay. I'm African-American, middle class, from 123rd and Morgan, went to Seven Holy Founders School, then Brother Rice, and then DePaul. I used at DePaul when I was at DePaul, uh, a little younger than me. Yeah, I know my immediate family story going back 100 years to southwest Louisiana, and then that, like you said, that story isn't pretty. Added to this, I have a young son. I'm also interracially married. Jesus, guys, like my mirror image. There's so much I want to teach him. My wife's family has a rich Irish history, and they've gone back to the old country and all that. I feel you, man. I think we need to make traditions, learn more about where we come from, but on the real, celebrate us, music, food, achievements, literatures, and give praise to those strong people that did what they did so guys like you and I could succeed. That's from Charles. Charles, I, I really do appreciate the the – the feedback. It's interesting. That episode got a lot of feedback. And look, I enjoy interviewing. I think as a talk show host, it's probably what I do best. But occasionally there's stuff that hits my brain and I just need to talk about it. I don't even necessarily need feedback, but sometimes I just need to open up the the Morants or or be, go into a studio and do all sorts of stuff. And I'm so grateful that my friend, Afia, who is going to be on the podcast, and I think that she has staked her claim to episode 100. <laughs> um, being able to celebrate with her family was a really eye-opening experience for me. And she went back and listened to the episode. And I was kind of like, man, I feel bad because now I feel like I'm trivializing what happened with her mom, but she enjoyed the episode. I did get a couple things wrong. The most important thing, Courtney Hall's family is from Senegal, not from the Sudan. So that's an, that's an important distinction to make. And I'll find a way to, to link that story that Courtney did because I thought it was so dope uh, that she went back to Africa and kind of retraced her roots. But... And my brother was saying, he's like, we we grew up in Princeton Park and not the Loden homes. And I'm like, eh. but he would know because he lived there a lot longer than I did. But yes, we were in the Princeton Park homes, not the Loden homes. It's to me, it's six of one, half a dozen of another. To him, it was important that I clarify. But I'm glad that people enjoyed it. Maybe I'll tell at some point I'll tell the story about me going to early involvement. I may I might I may have mentioned that. When I was in grammar school, I used to in seventh and eighth grade, I took classes at Harlan High School. So imagine walking from 95th and Harvard. <laughs> now it sounds so ridiculous. Like it was not a problem at all. But it's amazing what you do, like your level of of courage when you're a child that you lose as you get older and more experienced. But basically we walked straight down 95th street every morning for two years. And I took classes at Harlan high school. It was uh, quite the experience in my Catholic school uniform. If you can imagine that. Hopefully my mother doesn't listen to this episode. Cause that was where I had my first like major, major fight. 
I'll just keep sharing since I'm sharing. Walking down 95th Street, used to love Larry Bird. Had a Larry Bird basketball, had a Larry Bird cap. And this kid, like, ran up and took my cap, and he ran. And so we ran. So it was me and my boy Joey. We ran. And he was a Gillespie kid, the, the, the grammar school right by the CTA Red Stop. And we caught him, and there was an issue. And I got my hat back. That's, that's all I'm going to say. All right, I'll move on to another email here. Let's see. Who else do we have in the emails today? Oh, Jeremiah wants to talk to me about racism. All right. Yeah, I don't. All right, I'll give you the first paragraph. It's not as simple as as is black and white. It's more complex than psychosocial interrelationships. Nevertheless, if you notice that many, if not most, adult white people take issue with any white person being called racist. You know, it's it's almost become a dirty word. And I do feel like whenever that that term is brought up, people shut off and then they don't listen. I will say that it's used out of it's not always used correctly. When we mean to say that someone is bigoted or biased, we often will use racist as a catch all for that. And I don't think that is fair. But I think that there are tons of people who are uh, there. There are tons of people who need to be reminded of what type of power that they have. And like I said, we will eventually get into some broader topics. Like I, I will say this: that the feedback that I got from the Black Like Me episode. I think opens up the opportunity to have more conversations like that. And maybe even with when I was talking with Layla Rahimi, if you go back and listen to the episode of Layla Rahimi, um, I don't feel like I'm sharing too much, but Layla and I had a bunch of people over to the house for the, the title games. Championship Sunday is kind of traditionally the day when I invite people over to the house. We have a good time. We drink, we eat. Panther was a bartender. So she makes these incredible drinks and knock people on their ass And Layla came over and the majority of the house was black. And we were talking about issues of of race and culture. And it was interesting to get Layla's response to some of it because of where she is, where with identifying as Persian, what that where where does one fit in a racial conversation that is often simply black or white and without without a healthy conversation of everything that is inside that spectrum and i do think that we're learning to to look inside that spectrum of i'll just take my own experience like what's it like to be a black american versus being afro latina What's it like to be a black American in baseball versus being black and from the Dominican Republic? 
what's being black like in the Dominican Republic. Not great. I can tell you that. When people were making fun of Sammy Sosa, they were making fun of him without understanding what's happening in the Dominican Republic. What's it like to have in the Dominican Republic in Haiti two people who are separated by language and hate each other even though they come from the like the same place. Anyway, you understand what I mean. So it was great getting Layla's perspective on this and what it's like for her to navigate race and how in many there are some circles where she is not considered a person of color. There are other circles where she is considered a person of color. I was having a conversation with one of my students who identifies as a Syrian and we were talking about how she she is always looked at a Syrian as being white and I said that's interesting because I feel like for the most part everyone from the Middle East is a person of color but it's not up to me how do you identify anyway I've probably gone on too long with that but I just wanted to let you know that that's kind of how my mind thinks and occasionally I love having conversations about this and shout out to to Shayna Goff um, Jason's little sister although I shouldn't refer like she's our own person but just to give you a reference like I've known Shayna since she was young and the conversations that she and I had back and forth after the episode I thought was really dope and I thought that she added some context with them being um, Afro-Caribbean It was really interesting to hear their thoughts on then coming to America, not her and Jay, their parents uh, coming to America and what their experience was like uh, in in America being black and then being in Evanston during the the 80s. Interesting. So anyway, I appreciate you indulging me yet again for another episode. Um, I just literally got a text back from Pat who's really happy that I'm going to be able to do this. And I am looking forward to, to having him on again. So I, I big time thank him. And I thank you. I, as the, I know that, that it's been a little helter skelter with the pod and we're because I'm doing so much, but I'm glad that you're still here. I'm glad that house of L is still a place where I can do whatever I want to do. And that for the most part, you respond to it. Now, go back and listen to older episodes. There's some there's some straight up jewels in there, man. I'll talk to you in 2 weeks. Hey